Welcome back to EMAGCast. I'm Annalie Bagas, and today we're getting into the nitty-gritty of pulmonary embolism with Dr. Josh Cornegy. Dr. Cornegy is on faculty here at OHSU, and he's helped us out with a few episodes on the podcast in the past, so we're stoked to have him back for more of his expertise. We're going to break this topic up into two episodes because there's a lot to go through, and in each episode, we're going to present Dr. Cornegy with two patients that we often see in the emergency department. We'll work through both a hemodynamically stable patient and a hemodynamically unstable patient that comes into the department with a PE, and we'll hear how Dr. Cornegie would work through each of these cases. This week, we're going to go over the hemodynamically stable patient, so let's start with a little history. This patient is a 52-year-old woman presenting to the emergency department with sudden onset shortness of breath and right-sided pleuritic chest pain that started three hours ago. She's otherwise healthy and active with no family history of bleeding or clotting disorders. She recently returned from a vacation in Mexico where on her way back she encountered lots of long layovers and sitting around in airports and on planes. Her only medication includes an occasional ibuprofen and hormone replacement therapy for menopausal symptoms. Her vital signs reveal tachycardia and an oxygen saturation of 94-95% on room air. Her blood pressure is normotensive. So obviously this episode is about pulmonary embolism, and that's likely where we're going to be going with this patient, but um, one of my first questions for Dr. Cornegie is, what do you have on your differential when this patient comes into the emergency department? Of course, pulmonary embolism is there, but we also have to think of all of the other things that this patient is at risk for. So what kind of things do you go through in your mind when you hear this presentation of this undifferentiated patient? Yeah, this is a this is a great point and one that I hope like for all the student uh, the student audience out that they take this away is that in the emergency department we're talking about PE right now but I mean this is a totally undifferentiated patient when they come in front of you sure in your history that you just gave me she's got some risk factors for PE but she's also got risk factors for a host of other things and so having that broad differential for some shortness of breath some tachycardia, some chest pain, and what I would call some relative hypoxia for a 52-year-old woman who doesn't have a whole lot of other past medical history. If she's like in the 94% on room air, and that's that, that's not normal for her. And so I think that that brings up a lot of stuff. And in the emergency department, um, things that are going to kill her are the things I want all the students to be thinking about first. And right now you've got a lot of uh, cardiac things and a lot of pulmonary things that you can be thinking of. And so I think the the broad differential diagnosis is a pneumothorax, Um, of course a pulmonary embolism, Um, uh, acute myocardial infarction, a a silent MI in a patient who's 52, is a female who's 52 is definitely not out of the ordinary. some sort of aortic injury, uh, aortic dissection. If you don't think about an aortic dissection, you will miss it. That's the way that we find aortic dissections is to miss them and then they come about later. Um, things that argue against that is some, you know, things in her. Uh, she's got a normal blood pressure. Um, she doesn't have a lot of the risk factors. Um, it's pr- more predominant in males. It's more predominant in smokers. But I definitely want it to be on everybody's differential diagnosis because if it's not, you will miss it. Um, you know, more rare things like an esophageal injury 
um, if she had had this history of cyclical vomiting syndrome and had been vomiting for 10 hours prior to this is a case I saw um, in one of our hospitals just the other day that presented very similar to this and had kind of severe kind of right-sided pleuritic chest pain that moved up into his neck and then on his exam had like impressive crepitance right up around his neck and had uh, Borhoff syndrome from an esophageal rupture from his cyclical vomiting syndrome. So that's kind of the things that I'm thinking of immediately that are going to potentially kill this person in front of me. And that's the thing that I think in the emergency department all of our students should be thinking about. Um, so that's the broad differential I think that I would include in this patient. Awesome. That's really helpful. And we've been talking a lot about away rotations and succeeding on rotations. And I think what you mentioned about students always keeping that broad differential, it's, it's important. And they'll always gain you points on your rotation. So <laughs> Very think <true>. about it. <laughs> Very true. Um, so in, we have this broad differential. What kind of things in, this, in her history point you towards, get you thinking more about pulmonary embolism in her? Yeah, I think the, the, the biggest thing that you're giving me is a relatively healthy patient with a pleuritic component to her chest pain and a bit of a travel history that increases her risk for hemostasis and clot formation and some medication components that have been tied to and associated with um, increased clot burden. It's the biggest things that make me think of pulmonary embolism. If you took this patient and ran them through any type of scoring criteria, PE would move pretty high up on the list. Let's pause here and go over some of the scoring criteria that Dr. Cornegie is talking about. You probably have heard of these criteria before and maybe have even used them on your clerkships in the past. But we're talking specifically about the PERC criteria and the Wells criteria. These are two very different methods of risk stratifying patients that you do or do not think have a PE. Let's break them down a little bit, starting with PERC. PERC is a tool that is used to rule out PE. You can remember this pulmonary embolism rule out criteria. PERC, pretty straightforward, right? I feel like PERC is probably a little bit more helpful just because for me, PERC is like. I really don't think there's a PE here. I really, really don't think there's a PE here. But you can never say that there's not a PE there. You know, I was listening to um, a podcast on Rebel EM just a couple of days ago that was talking about the uh, prevalence of PE and syncope trial that just came out. And they were talking about some of the findings in this study. They may just be like the prevalence of PE in the normal, healthy, 80-year-old population out there. So you could always make an argument that it could be a PE, I guess. But what PERC has really given us is that that patient, you feel like it's so low that you don't really feel like there are any other kind of tests that need to be done. The components that go on into it are age, and this is the one that I find a little bit difficult sometimes. So a lot of times you will have a patient like this one who presents and uh, based on age alone, they fail PERC because they're over the age of 50. So anything over the age of 50, um, a heart rate over 100, any type of hypoxia, so oxygen saturations on room air less than 95%. History is huge, so if they've ever had a prior clot, it doesn't count. If they've had recent trauma or surgery, if they've had hemoptysis, or if they're on um, hormone replacement therapy as our patient is here. So if they don't meet any of those criteria, then PE is so unlikely that the, the, um, the authors of this trial 
felt that no further workup was really needed for PE. And it's probably, it's definitely a scoring criteria, risk stratification criteria that has definitely changed the way that I think we evaluate PE and treat and or look for PE. And so it's definitely been a, cha a practice changing uh, paper or trial for me um, and I think most people in the world of emergency medicine. All right, we'll include a link to that paper that Dr. Carnegie is referring to in our show notes. So if you're interested in reading up on the literature behind the PERT criteria, you can find it there. Let's just briefly go back through each of the rules. So your patient has to fall into each of these categories to, in order to have a less than 1.8% chance of having a pulmonary embolism. Again, it's the pulmonary embolism rule-out criteria. So here are the rules. You have to have an age less than 50 years old, a heart rate less than 100 beats per minute, oxygen saturation of greater than or equal to 95%, no hemoptysis, no exogenous estrogen use, no recent surgery or trauma requiring a hospitalization within the last four weeks, no prior venous thromboembolism, and no unilateral leg swelling. If your patient answers no to all of these things, then again, less than 1.8% chance of having a blood clot in their lungs. As Dr. Carnegie mentioned, this isn't zero. There's always a chance that there's a clot there, but it gets you pretty close. Looking at our patient, she pretty much fails royally at the PERC criteria. So she's 52 years old. She fails that aspect of it. She's tachycardic with a heart rate greater than 100 beats per minute. She's got an oxygen saturation of 94%, and she uses exogenous estrogen. So that clues us in that we need to continue working this patient up for a PE and kind of puts up our antenna that we need to look into this further. Uh, previous to that, we had you know, the Wells criteria, and Wells has developed criteria for both DVT and PE. So they're two different scores, so that's important to know if you were trying to look one up and, and make sure you're looking up the right one. And it's a way of risk stratifying a patient for likelihood of pulmonary embolism so that you can decide on what next test to do. And so that's a really important concept of like, this isn't like PERC telling you, oh, you don't need to go and do anything else because the risk is so low. This is telling you there's some risk and you probably, if you're using wells, you probably need to be doing some sort of further criteria or some sort of diagnostic testing, or you're not really using the tool the way that it was designed to use. And so the components, again, um, are clinical signs and symptoms of a, of a more distal clot, so like a DVT, like a source clot that made its way to the lung. And this is the subjective piece. If the provider feels that PE is the number one diagnosis above other things. And so some people have questioned how useful this tool is due to the subjectivity of that criteria. Um, if you wanted to get a lot of CT scans, you could always say PE is my number one because I never want to miss one. But if you don't want to ever think about PE, you could always come up with something else that you felt like for whatever reason was more likely. And um, always plug that one in. And so that's a little bit of criticism that the Wells for DV or for PE has gotten is based on that subjective component. Uh, tachycardia also plays into this greater than 100. Um, the risk factors of immobilization, prior trauma, prior surgeries is also a part of this score. Um, history of prior clots. 
Um, homoptysis again makes its way into this score. And then a big one that's in this one that is not in PERC is malignancy. Malignancy is a risk factor for um, clot burden, for clot formation. And so using this score, which as you mentioned can be found on MDCalc, which is very helpful, um, to risk stratify a patient as likely or unlikely or high, moderate, or low risk to decide if you could maybe get away with a D-dimer and a negative D-dimer as a workup, um, or if you need to pursue further imaging like a cross-sectional CT scan of the chest looking for a filling defect. All right, Wells criteria. Another way to risk stratify your patient for the risk of having a PE. This is worth looking up on MD-Calc and going through the calculations of what a hypothetical or an actual patient that you have might come out to. So again, there's a Wells criteria for PE and there's a Wells criteria for DVT. But each, each criteria, your patient gets assigned a certain number of points and you can look on MDCalc to the total number of points, what that equals in their risk of having a PE. So once really quick, these categories again are clinical signs and symptoms of a DVT, PE as the number one diagnosis or equally likely. So this is that subjective part that we're talking about. Uh, heart rate greater than 100 beats per minute. Immobilization at least three days or a previous surgery in the last four weeks. Uh, previously diagnosed PE or DVT, hemoptysis, and malignancy with treatment within the last six months or palliative. So again, look these up on MDCalc. They're interesting to go through and to see how... Um, each of these signs can increase a patient's risk of having a PE or a DVT if you're looking at that criteria. One thing to think about is that these are, these are scoring systems to help you risk stratify your patients. It shouldn't be the only thing that you look at when, you're, when you have a patient in front of you that's undifferentiated or that you're concerned about a PE or a DVT in. Yeah, I think like any predictive risk stratification score, they I find them super helpful. I think that they should not be discounted. Um, but like anything else in medicine, you can have patients that have a great story for a disease pathology and score perfectly fine on any type of risk stratification score you put them through. And so I think that they, it's part of the science of what we do and part of the art of what we do in emergency medicine. And for me, in this stage of my career, I just think it's a really kind of beautiful combination of the two. Um, if I see someone at the bedside with this history, I don't know that I'd even plug and chug their numbers into any score. Like, I'm so worried about a PE being possible, I'm just going ahead and ordering the test. But I think there is that patient that it's kind of much more gray that these scores are very helpful for. And we, this is the best evidence that we have backing up our decision making. And so I think that they're important, but like everything else in medicine, there are pearls and pitfalls that we have to take into account when we're using them. So Yeah, absolutely. So that kind of segues nicely into our next part of this. So what would what tests would you order on this patient? Um, you're worried about a PE. She's got this great story for it. Um, what would be your next steps from here? So she is, by my definition, a hemodynamically stable patient. Um, and so I would go a little bit slower in this and have, you know, I would cast kind of my broad net. Um, a 52-year-old, I think that an EKG in my department would already have been done and handed to me on presentation. I think the EKG can give you some valuable information about ruling out some of the other things that could be on the differential diagnosis. So it'll tell me if there's a 
uh, ST, segment, uh, ST segment elevation myocardial infarction, give me some idea if there is maybe a pericarditis, which very, could e very easily could present like this. Um, and it can give me some idea about the probability of PE um, with the regards to kind of a right heart strain pattern, which we could talk about. And there's also was a great study done, a 2015 study looking at EKG findings that were actually helpful in predicting if a stable PE would then become an unstable PE and throughout their hospital course. And so there's like findings on uh, EKG that I've, in my kind of own thought process, have labeled kind of the scary six, that if I see any of those things on an EKG and somebody that I already know has a pulmonary embolism, will make me think a little bit differently about where that patient ends up. Um, if they have those findings on their EKG, I won't send them home. And some of them I will make an argument to talk with the ICU, even if they look very stable in front of me, because that, the meta-analysis looked at these EKG findings, and they were pretty predictive of hemodynamic um, instability within the first 8 to 12 hours of hospitalization in patients diagnosed with PE. So EKG up front, um, all of these patients are going to get kind of a typical lab set. Um, and when I say typical lab set, that I think everybody thinks of a CBC and a metabolic panel. I'm not certain how much those are helpful um, in this particular case. Um, COAGs are helpful um, to get you started if you really are thinking about a pulmonary embolism, if you're going to have to anticoagulate them in any way, getting a baseline set of COAGs. Other things that I find are really helpful as far as biomarkers are actually troponin and BNP um, have been demonstrated to be really helpful in presenting uh, in like demonstrating a right heart profile. Um, if a heart becomes ischemic from a pulmonary embolism, that ischemia is coming from the right ventricle. And so um, an elevated troponin or an elevated BNP in the setting of a pulmonary embolism is actually a, a quite worrisome kind of biochemical profile. Um, for what the rest of their course would look like. So those would definitely be on there, and again, they would help you determine other things that are on your differential diagnosis. Um, ultimately, when I'm hearing this story, I'm thinking this girl, this, this patient, she's needing a CT scan of her chest to really get this diagnosis, but I also think, you know, you're could be a big pneumonia, could be a pneumothorax, and so she's going to get a chest x-ray in our department before she goes for any further cross-sectional imaging. And so all of that's going to happen relatively quickly so that I can kind of put checks in my boxes on the other things that are on my differential diagnosis with the plan of, you know, as soon as I see these, I'm putting in the order for her CT scan of her chest to kind of look for the P that I already have a pretty high suspicion is there. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. One test I didn't hear you say that you wanted to order would be a D-dimer. Can you kind of elaborate why you wouldn't order a D-dimer on this patient? Um, you know, I D-dimer is is a D-dimer is a tough test for me. I don't really know what to do with it in a lot of cases. Um, I've ordered it before. I've made some decisions based off of it before. Um, I'm still fooled by it all the time. I've seen patients with big PEs that have had a non-detectable D-dimer, and everybody has seen the patients that you're like, ah, oh, we got the D-dimer, and it's slightly positive, so now we're going to get the CT scan that comes back negative. And so um, there's lots of things that cause, you know, split fibrin products. And in a patient that I have this high of a suspicion for a pulmonary embolism, I'm probably going to skip the D-dimer, to be honest. I'm probably not going to get it because 
even with this story and a normal D-dimer, I still don't feel comfortable going to bed at night without knowing for sure that this patient doesn't have a pulmonary embolism. Yeah. And so I don't think I would get a D-dimer in this patient. Yeah, that I mean, that makes perfect sense to me. I think the way I've also heard about it is, I mean, if you have such a high suspicion, whether or not the D-dimer is positive or negative, like you're saying, you're still going to get the CT, so why get the D-dimer in the first place? Yeah. You, know, you have such a, so many things that are cluing you into getting into this, being a PE, the best... You're not going to diagnose that with a D-dimer. You're going to diagnose it with a CTA. So what kind of things on an EKG may clue you into a, into a PE? So I'm sure that most people probably have heard, like, the most common findings in PE are a normal chest X-ray and sinus tachycardia. And so that's not terribly helpful because I would say that... <laughs> of the patients I see on any given day have a normal chest x-ray and sinus tachycardia. And so, um, but that's going to be the most common finding that you're going to find on your initial evaluation of these patients. Other things that have been looked at um, uh, that include or demonstrate some degrees of right heart strain, the classic board question is the um, EKG that demonstrates an S1, Q3, T3 pattern. Um which, if you can imagine, looking at an EKG is a pathologic S wave in lead one and then a pathologic Q wave in lead three with an inverted T wave in lead three. Um, And that's kind of the classically taught EKG finding for right heart strain. Um, And so, and, and studies have definitely demonstrated that if you have that pattern, then chance for PE is definitely higher. And if there is PE with that pattern, chances for evolving hemodynamic compromise is higher. And so it's a concerning finding if you have it. Um, But what I find happens most of the time is, oh, there's a risk factor for PE here and they have chest pain and their heart's a little fast. Maybe that S wave is a little bit more than I would think. there's not a Q really, but there's definitely an inverted. So it's like a partial pattern, and you're like, it's sometimes much more difficult to make a decision off of. And so there's some other things that really will clue you into some degree of right-sided heart strain as well. A new right bundle branch block is definitely a predictor of right heart strain. Um, but you can also have that with some degree of an acute myocardial infarction, so it's definitely not specific. Uh, but it, it, if you have it, it's concerning. Um, ST segment elevation in AVR. It's like one of the, that and like toxicologic overdoses is why I find AVR helpful. And so if you go to AVR and you have ST segment elevation, in the study that I talked about earlier, that single finding on an EKG um, was more predictive of poor hemodynamic kind of hospitalization course than anything else. And so I do get quite worried if I see, even if it's in an isolated lead, ST segment elevation in AVR, signs of right-sided heart strain. And then the other one that was associated with, and I don't know again if, if it's terribly specific for, but some T-wave inversions in the precordial lead, specifically V2 and V3. And again, this was a meta-analysis, looked at a lot of patients, but 
all of the patients that were included were somewhat different because they were from different papers. And so, but those were kind of the six findings that they found that were associated with kind of worst course with a PE. And so if I know someone has a PE and they have those EKG findings, it definitely you know, will perk my interest. Um, but if I've got an undifferentiated patient and I start seeing some of those findings on an EKG, particularly if I have an old one to compare it to, I, I start getting much more concerned that there's something affecting the right side of the heart. There's not only a PE that can affect the right side of the heart, would be the other piece that I would throw into that. So you can have right heart strain from other things besides a pulmonary embolism. All right, so this patient, we got our basic labs on, we got an EKG, we got a chest x-ray, her EKG shows tachycardia and her chest x-ray is normal, pretty standard. Yep. <laughs> um, so you get the CTA on her and um, she's, she's got multiple subsegmental pulmonary emboli. All right, so we've got the diagnosis. Our patient has subsegmental pulmonary emboli, but what does that actually mean? If she's got small clots, do we need to treat them? What happens if we don't treat? She's stable. Can we send this patient home? Do we need to admit her to the hospital? There's a lot of questions, but we're going to leave you to brew on them for a couple of weeks. We'll be back to discuss what this diagnosis means for this patient and how Dr. Carnegie would treat her. We're then going to move on to the unstable patient that we were mentioning, and we'll discuss different treatment options for that group of patients. There's a lot to go over, but I hope this helped to kind of break down some of the aspects of diagnosing a PE in the emergency department. To quickly review, most patients that come into the ER aren't carrying signs that tell you what they have. The great thing about emergency medicine is you more often than not have an undifferentiated patient in front of you. So keep your differential diagnosis broad because you don't want to get hooked on one idea and miss something else. If you are wondering that your patient might be at risk for a PE, it is worth running them through the PERC criteria to rule out PE or Wells criteria to take a look at their risk of having a PE. For ordering tests, helpful things will be an EKG. This will probably show sinus tachycardia, but you may get lucky and see an S1, Q3, T3, and your life would be a perfect boards question. Coags are a helpful baseline if you think you're going to need to anticoagulate your patient, and a BNP and troponin can help determine if your patient has a component of right heart strain, along with their EKG. A D-dimer is a tricky test and should only be used judiciously. Patients that cough hard enough can bump their dimer, and if this is positive, you buy your patient a CT scan. So just be cautious when ordering this test. In the end, it's a CTA of the chest that's going to diagnose a PE in your patient. So this is a lot of info, but it's all pretty important, so keep an eye out for the following episode in the coming weeks where we go over the treatment of this patient and then our next patient that's an unstable patient with a PE. All right, thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you in a few weeks. Yeah.